Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our insight series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe and share. Hello and welcome to Sibline's podcast series. I'm Liana Semchuk, Lead Europe and Eurasia Analyst, and I'm joined today by Alex Lord, our Europe and Eurasia Analyst, and Sophia Wolford, our Europe Analyst, to discuss the latest developments between Ukraine and Russia. Alex, Sophia, thank you both for joining me today. So the latest amassment of Russian troops near Ukraine's border is again driving speculations that Russia might be getting ready to invade. Most sources and media reports seem to think that if Russia were to do so, then we might be looking at something in early New Year, potentially late January or early February. Alex, Sofia, could you briefly explain what is happening on the ground and how likely is this to occur? Bearing in mind that similar concerns over Russian troop buildup were raised earlier this year in April, but in the end did not materialize. So is this time any different? Are we looking at a potential armed conflict at the start of a new year? Thanks, Liana. Yeah, so there have been a lot of reports and predictions flying around this week about the Russian buildup of troops along Ukraine's eastern border, as well as in occupied Crimea and in Belarus. Now, according to Ukrainian military intelligence, at present, it appears that roughly 40 Russian battalion tactical groups are massed along the border, although intelligent reports published by both the Ukrainians and the US are predicting that this could be setting the scene for a much larger military operation in early 2022, like you mentioned, in potentially in late January or early February. Now, those warnings outline the potential for a much larger Russian invasion of eastern and southern Ukraine, potentially right up to the Dnieper River. And that would involve some 100 battalion tactical groups, so significantly more than we're seeing at the moment amassed at the border. But of course, any military operation could also involve a much less serious and less ambitious plan, such as targeted strikes at Ukrainian artillery positions or a general intensification of fighting in Donbass, all of which would nevertheless still be a notable escalation. Now, I think the first thing to mention is that this is far from the first time we've seen Russian troops massing along the border. And like you mentioned, Liana, we saw a much larger and more transparent military buildup in April earlier this year. At the time, there were concerns of an imminent invasion of Ukraine as well, which ultimately didn't come to anything. And so the first thing to state is that this current buildup, which is notably smaller in scale than we saw in April, could well be primarily designed to provide Moscow with leverage during what is really quite a tense period of time, given the ongoing migrant crisis in neighbouring Belarus and various disputes with the EU and the US over gas supplies, for example. Ultimately, at this stage, it really isn't clear whether this build-up signifies a sort of concerted decision on Moscow's part to resolve the ongoing Ukraine question by military force. The the ongoing fighting in Donbass between Kiev and Russian-backed separatists does continue to defy um, diplomatic resolution. And so an attempt to resolve the issue in Russia's Russia's favour by military force does remain an option. Ultimately, though, I think that's exactly what this build-up is designed to do. It's designed to provide Moscow with options going forward. A lot can change between now and February. And while Moscow has been clear in setting out numerous of its red lines on the issue, red lines which would precipitate or justify in their eyes a military response, I think Russia is much more likely to respond to developments as they occur 
and assess whether an escalation is favourable in that moment, rather than commit itself to any sort of course of action several months down the line. These two movements that Alex, you just mentioned, coincided with the breakdown of diplomatic ties between Russia and the West. Now we are seeing increasingly confrontational messaging from Moscow. And as you mentioned, it seems that the Kremlin's red line in Ukraine is shifting. In the past, Ukraine's NATO membership was considered a red line, but the Kremlin is becoming increasingly alarmed that alarmed by Kiev's deepening cooperation with NATO, even if the prospects of Ukraine entering the alliance in the near future remain slim. At the same time, President Zelensky has also shifted to a harsher stance on Russia over the past year, shutting down Russian TV stations and seemingly giving up on finding a compromise with Moscow. This is probably unacceptable for the Kremlin, which might leave limited room for compromise without the use of force from um, the Russian perspective. The situation in Ukraine is also exacerbated by the ongoing gas crunch in Europe that underscores the EU's dependence on Russian energy supplies. The Nord Stream 2 pipeline is expected to be approved early next year, and after that Putin's leverage over the EU will increase significantly, constraining Europe's room for maneuver in terms of foreign and security policy. Lastly, it is also an important aspect that Europe is preoccupied with managing the pandemic at the moment, and Chancellor Angela Merkel is also expected to leave office next month. I think this will create a more volatile political landscape in Europe, leaving it without a dominant foreign policy leader at a time when the, when the transatlantic alliance is also perceived to be relatively weak. Great. Thank you both for that. And definitely, as you allude to there, it is currently not clear whether the Kremlin has made a decision on whether or not to launch a military offensive, given various considerations of potential costs and benefits. But ultimately, what can the European Union, the United States and also NATO do to deter Russia from further aggression if Moscow does choose to pursue this strategy? Have we seen any notable measures or steps from Ukraine's uh, Western allies recently? Well, I think deterring Russia will require incredible preparations from the United States and the EU for the possibility of a military conflict next year. I believe that this time diplomatic maneuvering in itself will not be sufficient to demonstrate resolve, and Ukraine's Western allies will have to be very clear about the consequences of Russian military action. That said, Western promises must not be overstated for two reasons. First, to avoid misleading the Ukrainian leadership into hoping for a support that will not materialize in case of an actual armed conflict, and also to maintain NATO's international credibility. So far, we have seen the United States sending military advisors and weapons to Ukraine, including, for instance, anti-aircraft missiles. I think we can expect such support from the US in the coming months as well. In addition, media reports claim that the United Kingdom is ready to send its special forces to Ukraine should a military conflict unfold. In contrast, it seems that the European Union is taking a much softer approach and we will likely see more diplomatic messaging and discussions about potential new sanctions. Earlier in November, European defense ministers discussed the bloc's so-called strategic compass for the first time. It's a policy document that aims to improve the EU's collective security and boost the EU's military capabilities. 
I think it is important to highlight that during this meeting, defense ministers also focused on addressing hybrid threats like border skirmishes and other gray zone activities that can be linked to Russia or Belarus. This is a promising step forward, in my opinion. That said, similar efforts in the past have failed to achieve significant improvements in the EU's rapid deployment capacities. So I think this initiative should be taken with a pinch of salt again, as it is unlikely to deter Russia in the short term. And even if it materializes, it probably won't happen before 2025. Thanks, Avia. And uh, one other area that arguably gets sometimes less attention than the conflict in Donbass is with regards to the tensions in the Black Sea. Russia has been particularly sensitive in this regard and has always responded critically to the presence of NATO ships in the area. And we've seen few of those incidents play out throughout 2021. So can we expect there to be any notable developments or flashpoints in Ukraine's maritime security in 2022? Yeah, it's a great point, Liana. The Black Sea has always been central to Russia's security. And given the particular geography of the region and the Soviet Union's historic dominance over the sea, Moscow has taken great pains to emphasise its red lines and particularly its sort of de facto claims to hegemony over the region in recent weeks. And of course, the annexation of Crimea in 2014 underlined most clearly the continuing importance of the region to Russia's security. Now, the the Kremlin's line on this has been pretty clear, as they've consistently accused NATO and Ukraine of provocations in the region, particularly, as you mentioned, the deployments of NATO warships, but also Western arms deliveries to augment Ukrainian capabilities and their ability to deter Russia at sea. Only this week, we saw some US patrol boats delivered to Odessa. So we're seeing these happen right in the middle of tensions, which is of particular note and concern for the Kremlin. Now, earlier this year, we saw an incident involving the Royal Navy destroyer HMS Defender when it transited through Crimean waters, which are obviously claimed by Russia. Now, while both sides have different accounts of the incident, the Russians claim to have fired warning shots uh, near the vessel and, and then forced it to withdraw from or what it sees as its own waters. The UK denies that. I think it clearly illustrates the potential for freedom of navigation missions and naval exercises to trigger an escalation in the Black Sea. And of course, when tensions are high, the West wants to illustrate its support for Ukrainian sovereignty, like Sophia mentioned, and its ability to sort of actively deter Russia. And I think naval missions arguably represent one of the clearest ways of doing this. So there is clearly potential for an incident in the coming months, given Russia's particular sensitivity around this issue and around these waters. Now, the Russians, they've already shown their willingness on various occasions to use force and coercion to exercise their sort of claimed sovereignty over these waters, particularly at the Kerch Strait. And so when tensions are rising on land, as we're seeing along the eastern border of Ukraine at the moment, I think the risk of an escalation in the Black and Azov seas will also increase And this will ultimately increase the risk of commercial shipping disruptions and increased waiting times for vessels transiting the the Kerch Strait onto Mariupol or Rostov-on-Don. But more seriously, a more serious escalation does remain possible. And we may well see the Black Sea sort of turn into a, a more suitable arena for one or both sides to sort of let off steam, as it were, and to signal to one another their intentions. 
So for me, I'll be keeping a very close eye on the Black Sea in the coming weeks, as I think it can tell us quite a lot about where we might be headed. Thank you, Alex. Definitely a lot of flashpoints and potential for escalation to look out for, not only on land, but also on sea between uh, Ukraine and Russia in the month ahead then. And lastly, the question I wanted to end on is with regards to broader geopolitical terms. So we predicted at the start of this year that relations between the U.S. and Russia will be consistently more tense throughout 2021, particularly as Washington has increased its support for Ukraine and maintained a more consistently critical stance towards Russia. But it seems that the rift between the U.S. and Russia is continuing to grow still further. And we've seen notable developments occur throughout the year. For example, we've seen Russia breaking its diplomatic ties with NATO last month. We've seen mass diplomatic expulsions. Most recently, Joe Biden also did not invite Russia to participate in the virtual democracy summit which will take place between the 9th and 10th of December. This, of course, did not go unnoticed by the Kremlin. So all of these things in mind, what does all of this tell us about the possible nature of relations between Washington and Moscow in 2022? Can we expect a more unpredictable geopolitical environment, or is this more of the same? What are some potential key risks that we should be looking out for? Yeah, so it's certainly been an eventful year in terms of tensions between the US and Russia. And unfortunately, I think they're very much set to continue. And as we've been discussing, there is room for an escalation early next year. Ultimately, what we're seeing in, in Eastern Europe, the Black Sea region, as well as other flashpoints around the world, actually, is an intensification of geopolitical competition. As we continue to sort of transition to a truly multipolar geopolitical environment where these sorts of tensions and, and competitions are increasingly fraught, We've seen various countries and blocs compete over influence, for, for influence over certain key countries in Eastern Europe and Southern Europe, but also energy and specifically gas geopolitics has played an increasingly large role in defining international relations in this respect, particularly at the moment as the Northern Hemisphere enters the winter. Now, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, has, as we've previously alluded to, it's remained central to this and has been an omnipresent influence over US-Russia relations. The project is ultimately almost finished. It's entering its final phase in the coming months. And Germany is expected to decide on whether it will grant the project final approval in early 2022. And so I think for that reason alone, I think a Russian invasion before January is, is highly unlikely as the Kremlin has invested a lot of political capital into the success of the project. And they wouldn't necessarily want to jeopardise that at the last minute. That said, once approval is actually granted, the geopolitical situation could become more uncertain. As Sophia mentioned, one of the main, if not the main sort of pieces of leverage that the EU has over Russia wouldn't be as potent in deterring Russian aggression as Russia will have already consolidated its position over key um, energy markets. Now, the current European gas crisis has underlined the issues of over-reliance on Russian energy imports, but it's also showcased the importance of the European market on the health of the Russian economy. So there is room for pragmatic economics, I think, to, to stay the Kremlin's hand, as it were, and provide space for potential de-escalation. But if the Kremlin does consider a military escalation to be to its advantage, they may well assess that they can weather the impact of potentially relatively short-term impacts from US and, and European sanctions, for example, particularly given the significant reserves Russia has been building in recent years, which may well be in preparation for such an eventuality. 
Ultimately, we'll have to wait and see what the situation is like early next year. And like I mentioned, I think that will determine whether the Kremlin decides to escalate or not, rather than sort of committing themselves here and now to a a course of action that may well not make sense in a few months' time, but we'll have to wait and see. I think whether there is an escalation or not, though, I can definitely foresee cycles of military build-ups and war scares continuing to become a recurring fixture of Russia-West relations and something that will continue, unfortunately, to present significant uncertainty for businesses operating not only in Ukraine, but across the wider region as well. Great. Thank you, Alex and Sophia, for joining me and for sharing your insights on this very important topic. And I look forward to speaking with you again soon. We are now joined by Anastasia Chisholm, our Middle East and North Africa analyst, to discuss key events to watch over the coming days and in the week ahead. Civil society groups in Burkina Faso have called for anti-government protests to take place in the capital, Bagadugu, on 27th of November, calling for the resignation of President Kabor and the be met by a heightened security presence, with security forces likely to use strong measures, including tear gas, to disperse protesters, elevating risk to staff of local businesses and causing disruptions to citywide supply chains. Meanwhile, across Europe, there will be an elevated risk of domestic unrest and potential rioting this weekend as anti-lockdown anger remains high following last week's clashes in the Netherlands and elsewhere. While security presences will be tightened, possible rioting will likely result in property damage across city centres. In Central America, Honduras will hold presidential elections on Sunday the 28th of November, following a tumultuous and violent election period. Results are likely to be contested, possibly triggering protests in the capital and other major urban centres over the coming weeks, which are likely to present disruptions to travel routes and supply chains. The possibility of violent clashes with security forces cannot be discounted. And finally, coming up on the 29th of November, Iran will be resuming nuclear talks with world powers in Vienna. Though the resumption is a positive step, Iran's talks with the International Atomic Energy Agency earlier this week have resulted in little concrete progress. In Vienna, Iranian officials are likely to continue to press for the US removal of sanctions, setting the stage for an unlikely resolution in the short term. Thank you all for listening. And if you would like more information about anything discussed today or on the subject more broadly, please do not hesitate to contact us at info at sibyline.co.uk.